Hello and welcome back to the Savvy Mama podcast. My name's Renee Burko. I'm a financial advisor, the founder at Money Mode and a mom of two. Our relationship with money is often complex and you will hear me say many times that to have a great relationship with money and a sense of success with it, that it's not just as simple as focusing on the practical side of managing your money. There are psychological and behavioural drivers that play a role in our financial well-being. It's an area so important to bring focus to and I often refer to it as the emotional side of money. It has very close links to our mental health, our sense of self-worth and our deep-seated money story. To explore this discussion with me today, I've invited in Australia's leading financial therapist, Jane Monica-Jones. Jane, thank you very much for joining us today on the Savvy Mama podcast. Thank you, Renee. You are one of Australia's very first or the one and only, I think, financial therapist. So could you just share a little bit about your kind of backstory, how you got to where you are and what financial therapy is all about? Yeah, it has been a very long journey of self-discovery, essentially what has made me a financial therapist. In the States, it's quite an established field. But in Australia, I think we're starting to really come across that there is deeper kind of ways that we are with in relation to money. So that's both psychological and behavioural. I became a financial therapist and it's a very long journey, Mm. most of it quite tragic. I left school quite unceremoniously. I didn't study. So I kind of jumped from job to job. And I came to realise that as I spiralled down out of control, with a lot of self-esteem issues that when I came to actually my recovery, that I started to see that there was bigger issues than just the kind of numbers of money. And I retrained to become a psychotherapist and I looked at issues around value. Value of us intrinsically beyond what we do as humans. And that's the way I look at everything. I look at money in that way deeper than just what's sitting in our bank account, essentially. That's a really, you know, a really important way to look at it because it is such an emotional beast. Like there are so many psychological, I guess, connotations to the whole thing. Our relationship with money is complex. And as you said, there is so many links to our self-worth, fear and insecurity and, you know, our money stories growing up and all of those sorts of things. But I guess from the work that you do now with your clients, how do you go about uncovering sort of what those psychological drivers and those motivations are around their decisions with money? Look, the first thing I sort of deal with, anyone that kind of goes and gets help usually has a certain amount of pain and that's where I really start. So if you can't save, then that's where we're going to start. If you've got a whole lot of debt, we're going to look at that. So I'm really looking at what causes us to pain around money? We often are not very good with pain. We want to avoid it. But for me, as a therapist, it's actually a really beautiful place for us to kind of expand and grow. So it depends on the client. Some people are very analytical and they just want to talk about the numbers. Other people are very emotional. But what I'm trying to do is kind of uncover the hidden issues of esteem or confidence or what's keeping you a little bit kind of stuck or collapsed in some way or unempowered. And that's where I'm trying to kind of go behind the numbers to see, okay, well, what's actually driving this person and what's going to create change and what's going to kind of make them feel confident in that next step. 
it's very much unique. Everybody has a very different money story that goes back way in their childhood, way in their family of origin. A lot of the experiences that we continue to accumulate around money because it's, of course, it's a relationship that is constantly changing, mm. both good and bad. So, yeah, it's kind of tricky to kind of nail down this slippery, this slippery story, really. Yeah. Well, let's just talk about those money stories for a minute because I feel that this is a really, really important piece of the puzzle. I'm a big believer that the events that happen, you know, through your childhood and the messages that you get, whether they're the conscious ones or the unconscious ones about money and your experiences that you've had with money have a big impact on how that plays out for you. Is that is that typically what you see? So what I'm looking at and what I've started to believe from working with a lot of clients is that the money story comes from issues of survival. We learn how to survive from our parents. And we are absolute sponges. We're totally learning how to operate within a tribe, our tribe, my family tribe. And then eventually I'm operating at school and then I'm eventually operating at work. So this story and this accumulation of how we do survival is continually evolving. Mm. But often in this place, people saying, oh, you know, you can't be emotional around money. Mm. I just want to put the handbrakes on that one. Yeah. It is a very emotional subject because it has to do with survival. Mm. It has to do how terrifying sometimes we can get in life about, am I going to survive this? Yeah. And, of course, that's going to be locked up within a lot of emotion. Yes. So I'd really like to put an end to that expression. You can't be emotional about money. It's going to turn up. and the it's more totally can, emotional. <laughs> exactly, totally emotional. And the more that we can accept that, and welcome that into the conversation, into the opportunity to kind of explore and inquire and see how I do this, the more we can be a little bit more compassionate, not only for ourselves, but others. Yes, I know exactly what you mean. And, you know, I feel like nearly everyone I speak to, and I can speak for myself too, you know, I've been on the roller coaster of, you know, the traumas and the triumphs of money through my money story. And one of the things that I... You know, if I look from my own experiences, I've been practicing in money for the last 20 years, but doesn't mean I've had all good experiences and done all good things with it over that time. But I've found that when, you know, I've been in cycles of what I would call self-destruction, and I see that commonly around the traps, and I had the power to be able to, you know, break myself out of that. But how do people stop this self-destruction or self-sabotage? Because it is often when I talk to people, it's, you know, they're in a situation that they know they shouldn't be in. You know, a lot of them have had the financial resources to be in a very different financial position to what they find themselves in. And then that sort of brings with it a whole raft of another emotions of, you know, resentment and shame. But I guess how did they put the brakes on that sort of situation and and deal with it? Yeah, look, I think, you know, the easiest kind of answer to that is to get help. I think we're starting to see that money and the way we operate with it can be a mental health issue. Mm. Come and see a financial therapist. Come and see me. It is Um, so intertwined. I mean, this is my, you know, one of the things that I'm really passionate about is we talk about the health and wellness has been a big topic for many, many years now. But financial well-being is a very important aspect to our overall well-being. 
Exactly. I mean, if we're talking about survival, it's the biggest. You know, it's the thing that puts the uh, roof over your head and the food in your bellies. But Mm. more so, what we often see, and this is something why I'm so passionate about this field, is, is that knowing something and doing something are world apart. A lot of financial well-being that we see in what, say, banks are doing in Australia or even what, say, the government is trying to do here in Australia is we throw a lot of financial literacy at it. That means we're going to teach our people how to budget, we're going to teach them what kind of investment products are out there and we're going to show them how to manage their money. But if we've already ascertained that doing and knowing and doing are worlds apart, then no true financial well-being can't really operate until we know how am I with money? What are the emotional triggers that make me blow my budget? What are the parts of me that feels incapable to say I'd really love to own my house but I don't know if I've got what it takes for the long haul? So really it's a bigger, bigger conversation. Often when we talk about financial well-being, and this is of course just my opinion, but Everyone knows that, you know, doing and knowing are worlds apart. So what do we have to kind of inquire about ourselves in order to shift the way I do something? And it could be behavioral change, but it's also what's sort of happening in our head and certainly what's in our heart Mm. um, that really creates great change for us. And, you know, the statistics out there are something like 65% of the population knows how to budget, but only about 31% do. Yeah. So we talked a little bit before about links to self-worth. If I look at the amount of people that use Afterpay and ZipPay and OpenPay and these types of services, you know, that they can't really afford, but they have this desire to be consuming all the time. How do we tackle that one? It's really challenging. I suppose the thing that, you know, the expression retail therapy is often a throwaway line. But for me, it's actually a pathology. I would diagnose that you have retail therapy and let's see if we can change that for you mm. because it's obviously causing you a lot of distress. I think retail therapy as a theme, I mean, is that actually fulfilling another need or would you say that's addictive kind of behaviour? It's kind of a lot of things. I think it can be addictive. So in the bigger context, we're trying to kind of deal with our mental health issues with our consuming. So never a good formula. If we don't have great sense of self-esteem or we need a little bit of a pickup, which is often what we're trying to achieve with retail therapy and purchasing, then, you know, we could have problems. And when I'm talking about that pickup, I'm talking about neurobiology and that is dopamine dopamine is the happy high Mm. we often want a bit of a happy high and when we do something of novelty so novelty the brain really loves to be entertained and something new that's why we kind of really love things like tiktok and clicking through our devices is novelty is just so much what we love the brain Mm. loves it Mm. and so what we're trying to do The novelty of going out and spending something new, I'm breaking out of my routine, so we've got novelty there. Then we see something and it's pretty and it looks great on us. We're getting that dopamine hit. These things are really kind of hardwired in us um, to kind of look for these joys. And particularly when life is hard and life is challenging and I'm trying to pay down debt, we want these kind of boosts. And so it's really tricky landscape that when we're trying to kind of 
get that joy or that pleasure in something that's kind of against what we're trying to do. We're trying to save money and then we don't we want a bit of a happy high. Mm. So it's kind of counterintuitive. Yeah. But it also shows how dangerous things like afterpay are and how it just exacerbates problems for certain people where they're looking for that happy high but they can't afford it but they do it anyway mm. and this big calls that this industry needs to be regulated it's not regulated like um, credit card yeah. and loan products yeah. Yeah. and it just truly needs to be regulated in a way just to protect people because it's a mental health issue. Yeah, one of the hottest stocks on the share market is the afterpay <laughs> shares and it frightens me no end because I just feel that, you know, for some people there may be some examples where people can use it cleverly, but for most people it is just kind of, as you say, exploiting. Yeah, it's exploiting people that may have a tendency to yeah. not have that self-control yes. or, yeah. you know. There's a big kind of lot of research around the ideas of addiction and it's very much linked to certain individuals are born with or because of trauma have had lower levels of dopamine. So they're kind of behind the eight ball and things like gambling, retail therapy, you know, and drugs and all that sort of stuff and even risky behavior is trying to get those natural levels back up again when mm. you've been depleted. So it's not just behavior it's actually neurobiology and we need to kind of think ethically around some of these things so we can sort of see the ethics of you know people are at risk because they have low self-esteem low serotonin and dopamine levels and that we these guys should be protected against artificial highs such as gambling and things Mm. like that you know i guess with these sabotaging behaviors i suppose that people you know partake in they don't feel good there might be that short-term high, but the long-term impacts on their financial situation, you know, can be quite devastating. How do people go about changing that narrative? And is it possible to change the narrative? How do they even start to kind of break it down? So essentially why we sabotage is to do with self-esteem. So when we feel we want to change something in our life, let's say we start saving, we're saving and saving, And we started to kind of build that as a bit of a a structure. Because our self-esteem can't perceive itself as being someone that is a saver, it will sabotage itself. The idea is is that deep inside of our sort of psyche and our sense of self-identity, we go, you know what, but I don't deserve it. So we're happily saving, 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 and then something will happen, we'll take a hit to our self-esteem someone says oh you're not so good at that or you had a bingle at your car and then now that's going to cost you a fortune it gets kind of wrapped up all those sort of natural events that happen to us it gets right sort of attacked into our sense of self-worth and self-esteem and then we'll go and blow that self-esteem and sabotage are very closely linked Mm. so when it comes to changing that behavior we need to look at sort of the foundational parts of you know how much do I love myself on a scale of zero to Mm. 100 and if you're not loving yourself then you're not going to be caring for yourself and taking self-care of yourself and if you're not self-caring yourself yourself there's not much self-responsibility so it's kind of a cyclical thing yeah it's also intertwined isn't it it's so intertwined the more that we love and respect ourselves the more we're 
more likely to take self-responsibility, self-care and less likely to self-sabotage. Mm. Because it is so important, as you say, you know, I'm very passionate about the sense that money is equal parts emotion and practical. I mean, I feel like you can't put into place exactly as you've said, those practical things that we are learning unless you've dealt with the emotional side first um, and looking at your values and looking at your goals and your big picture that you're working towards and also looking importantly at your money story and what things are, are holding you back. Yeah, exactly. You know, we often, it's part of our personality structure, we have a thing called, you know, it's another conversation, but we have a thing called the superego, which is our kind of inner critic, you know. It constantly operates in our life and it's to keep us essentially small and not to change and keeps us kind of in that sort of, you know, comfort zone. And it will show up particularly when we're trying to expand and, you know, learn new things and say, actually, I'm done with the pain down here. I want to get to the next level. Mm. That voice sits in there and we often listen to it. We often kind of hear it and think, oh, yeah, that must be the truth. But if I can tell you one thing and if you can get this thing, you can transform your life. If you can start listening to that inner critic and that inner critic starts to show up when you're trying to expand, say to it, you're an ally. I see that you're here and you're criticizing me. I'm not going to listen to what you say, but I'm, the fact that you're here means that I'm growing and I'm mm. expanding. So thank you very much for your presence. Mm. And what happens if we can start unplugging from that inner critic, then we can expand our life. Then we can implement change in a way that can really, really grow our lives. So, Jane, on that note, you talked when we first started chatting about where you are now has come out of your own personal journey. Was this the transformation that took place for you, being able to tame that judge? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was brought up in a middle-class family, but I was brought up in an academic family. So I was the youngest in five girls. And I had issues of depression, ADD. I just didn't fit that mould. So when I left school, I was like, oh, hang on, what am I supposed to be? And I had, you know, I do have financial therapy practice, but I also do general therapy as well. And I do deal with people with issues of drug addiction. Some of the biggest issues that people I see that take drugs is that they have this inner critic operating in their head, mm -hmm. constantly telling them how terrible they are. As soon as I could start working with that piece and going, you know what? Maybe that's not true what you're saying about me. Maybe I have something to contribute. You know, I mean, I think about my own story. Maybe actually I've got something new and interesting and exciting to share with people and that maybe I can do a lot of good in this life and maybe if I can stop listening to that inner critic, I can actually contribute in a really beautiful way. Mm. And this is what I'm trying to just work with my people that I work with, that actually there's a really golden child in there that wants to break out, mm -hmm. you know, and that they maybe can play again. That's a big piece. With, you know, money and pleasure is a big problem for yeah. a lot of people. And look, that's one of the most important things. Everyone, as you said, has got a completely different story and a completely different starting point and journey and the things that are important to them will vary. But it is about if you can get to the position where you can have some choices that are important to you and bring some joy into your life then, you know, that's a really important part of your financial goals and security. Yeah. Uh, look, it's a hard game. For so long, I pegged my value as a human being against what was sitting in my bank account. 
And we have a lot of societal pressure that instills that or props that idea up. Mm. So it does take a little bit of part of your metal to kind of fight against and say, actually, there's something inside of even just me that is worth being here, worth keep going, worth maybe contributing. You mm. know, there's a lot of big images that we have to be big, better, best. But in actual fact, you know, sometimes just being there is also just as intrinsically beautiful as us as human beings. And and if we can just sort of go, actually, there's something in me that's still, you know, that I'm going to be the best thing for my kids or I'm going to be the best thing for my community or I'm just going to be the best thing for myself. Yeah. So, Jane, in your experience and when people go sort of through a transformation, how do they adopt really good habits that stick? Yeah, I get asked this one often, particularly because people say, oh, I want to save, but I want to kind of build in a habit around it. So you can look at behavioral science for this. And that is, is that to make a good habit, we need to do a couple of things. So firstly, you need to add a habit to something that you already do. So we often think, okay, if I'm going to get fit, then I need to run 100 kilometers every day. Okay, well, that's not going to get you fit. That's going to just get you like sitting even more so on the couch because you're not going to achieve it and you're going to feel bad about not achieving it. So the best way to do habit formation, particularly say for saving, is that you do something that you already do. And that could be, say, every time you go and pay a bill, you pay yourself a dollar or you make a little transaction to your savings account. So you build two things in. You've got the habit and then you've got the trigger. The trigger is every time you have to pay a bill on internet banking, that's your trigger. And the habit is that you put a dollar or something or $5 into your bank account. That is the best way to set something up. Create the habit from a trigger. So I like it's it. building a habit around something that you already do. If you go too far, too big, <laughs> the habit won't be created. You have to do it very small. Yeah, I really like that. It's nice and simple and it's quite a tangible thing too. Yeah. Is having a goal really important? Interestingly though, when we want to create new habits, the goal is part of it, but if it's a big, fat, long, far-off goal, that's not going to necessarily inspire you to change a habit. Yep. We need to come back into building it, small baby, baby steps yep. is the yep. way to do it. Build it into something that you already do. And that can be for anything. So, Jane, we've had a huge chat, which I knew we would, because it is such an important topic, the whole, I guess, psychology behind money. And I think there's a lot more areas that we could still explore. But I guess what are a couple of key things that you would like to leave our listeners with? And we'll certainly include your details and the details of your book and website and everything in our show notes. But what would be a couple of key takeouts that could help? Look, I think probably one of the first ones would be if you want to change your financial situation, get courageous and look at what's causing you pain. So let's say that you want to buy a house, but you have a belief system that you can't or that you feel you're a bit kind of, unsettled or unstable or or whatever and so saving becomes very difficult pain is actually a really great teacher it shows us where we want to expand and grow if you want to change your financial situation you know you've got to pay down your debt 
find out what's the issue with me paying down debt. Why am I buying? Why am I not happy? And I'm hammering the credit card. So when you want to make big change, it's say the more positive in your world, you need to look at the behavior and maybe the negative aspects that are happening for you. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of big number one is seeing where the pain points are for you and that can create change. Number two is, is that try and welcome this idea that maybe looking at yourself in relation with money than just the numbers. Mm. Who am I when I want to ask for a raise? Because ultimately that's about money. Mm. You know, is it that I have problems about speaking up for myself? So start seeing that maybe money is a bit of a relationship just like a personal relationship. So really look at the kind of mental health, your mental health and money. And then the big piece that I would say is be compassionate. We are all in this game together. We're all kind of thrown into life together. If you can learn self-compassion for yourself, you know, mindfulness is something that we often hear about at the moment. If you can get a sense of compassion to say, you know what, I'm actually just human and I didn't get the tools in the past, but maybe I'm going to find out the tools that I need to have and I'm a human and so I'm just going to work with that. And when we can do that, we can be a little bit kinder to ourselves. We can be gentler and softer and more loving to ourselves. Mm. And I think that's what I'd really like people to get a lot more of. Well, thank you so much, Jane, for sharing so much of your knowledge and your passion with us. It is a really important topic and I'm sure we'll get our heads back together again at some stage in the near future and and look at how we can, you know, get our important messages across about, you know, about being able to have a good relationship with money. Thanks, Renee. Thank you so much for having me. We just touched the side of this very big discussion, but I hope you'll walk away from this episode with a broader understanding of some of the factors that play a role in your relationship with money, how to start exploring it, and to realize that knowing something and doing something are worlds apart. You can find Jane's details in the show notes and also where to find her book, The Billionaire Buddha, which is a step-by-step guide to understanding our unique relationship with money. If you've been enjoying the Savvy Mama podcast, I would love it if you left us a review or a rating and subscribe to the show because we have got many great episodes still in store for you. In the meantime, take care and we'll be back with you soon.